Welcome, bienvenue, konnichiwa. It's time for the Army's Inquisition yet again, episode 143. On Sunday the 2nd of August, I'm Armish Phil. I'm Armish Ben. And I'm Armish Matt. And tonight's special guest is Gillian Hovel. Uh, Gillian, aka the Muddy Archaeologist, is an author, ancient historian, archaeologist and Latin expert. Having personally excavated on sites ranging from Pompeii and Hadrian's Wall from the Roman period to prehistoric sites across the UK, Gillian is now using her expertise to communicate ancient history to a wider audience through her website, the Muddy Archaeologist. Uh, so please uh, go to the Muddy, uh, sorry, to go to muddyarchaeologist.co.uk, uh, and you'll find all the information there. Link in the description as usual. Welcome to the show, Gillian. Thank you very much. Good to be here. It's brilliant having you here. I mean, we, we often talk about ancient history here, so it's great to have a, a legit expert on the line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm um, pleased to be here. Good. I mean, it's it's sort of an unusual occupation. How did you get involved in archaeology? Well, I, I was read Tales of Greece and Rome when I was about nine by a teacher. And I sat there absolutely agog, listening to this other world where there were myths and legends. And I realised at that tender age, you've just reached the age when you realise there is a world beyond you, uh, that there was this strange, strange world. And then I eventually did Latin and ancient history at university just because I had a really good teacher who inspired me and answered my stupid questions. And then I went off and worked for the BBC for a while and lived life and had kids. And I really missed the history. And I was still studying it, and every holiday I'd go, oh, there's something archaeology, and the kids would go, oh, gosh, here we go again. <laughs> so every walk had to have some archaeology, beginning, middle, or end. And uh, then there was a local archaeology project, and I joined it, and uh, things just sort of sky went rocketed since then. I guess I ended up running the show, um, was trained up with the archaeology, and discovered that I loved lecturing and sharing it and showing people around the sites. And so then I started doing tours on the site. Then I started doing tours of places like Cyprus and Rome and the like. And uh, it just kept going, really. It became a pebble I kicked down the hill and then ran after. (laughs) So (laughs) (laughs) I just found something I absolutely adore sharing. Yeah, which is a lovely thing. Uh, I can tell. BBC, you know, helped me want to tell a story. You can tell from watching your videos how passionate you are about it all, and, and it's infectious, isn't it? It is very infectious, yeah, uh, because everything around us, there's a story that goes back years and years and years. I was, I was thinking before, I think, you know, I remember learning uh, history lessons in school, and it seemed to be a lot about learning dates and people's names and learning sequences of events and you never really got to learn about the actual people and the personal experience and that to me is what makes it so fascinating to me now 
Yeah, that's why archaeologists who are eager about their job, it's all about people. You know, I take people up to Orkney and we walk into houses that are 5,000 years old, obviously just ruins. But the thrill of going into a place that was someone's home and being able to duck under the threshold and walk around, okay, it's stones and beaten earth now, but it's still that connection with somebody who lived that long ago. And uh, you can't hurry people at a site like that. I just say, oh, this is packed lunch day. You know, people want to want to hang around. They want to feel the centuries, yeah. and they want to feel the millennia. And you're in, you're connecting with the people who first settled down. And how did they do it? What's the same as us? What's different to us? Are we similar? Are we different? It's about us as people, not just about them five thousand years ago. It's uh, it's a fascinating subject. You certainly learn a lot about the human condition, I think, from studying ancient history. And um, it can be frightening, it can be terrifying and and exciting in equal measure because you you can't believe what some people were capable of doing back then. It's horrific. You only have to think of the gladiator games. Yeah, People were sitting there watching. And I know it's fashionable to say, oh, they didn't kill each other, but that's not true at all. I've studied a lot of ancient texts. And they talk about how the gladiators die and the like. Um, and the thought that it was for entertainment is just unimaginable to us, but it's part of that human psyche. What if you, you train people enough? You know, how did the atrocities in the World War? So, how do you get to a point where that's acceptable? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's part of why you study it. It's see a- what's the society, what pushes people to do things. It's like a, a desensitization, isn't it? I mean, I was reading um, recently about the Jewish revolt that Titus mm. and Vespasian put down. Mm. And they were talking about the people leaving Jerusalem, trying to get away. And the, the, the legions were crucifying so many of them that they were yeah. started putting up with, putting the, nailing them up with their legs splayed and in weird positions because just to get rid of the humdrum of crucifying people, yeah. you think. Exactly. Uh, and it's just quite horrific. And if you were in the audience at, say, the Colosseum, you were glad you weren't down there. And there was this, the women had this huge sense that they owned the world and that they were mistress of the world and that they were the right ones as well. And the gods blessed them to do it. And if you stood up to us, we will crush you. So it's it's a very scary concept. And yet they have literature and culture and brilliant engineers, not every person is a bloodlust-filled, <laughs> crazed idiot. St. Augustine, when his pal went to the chariot races where people died frequently, he said, do you not realise that when you come back, you are slightly less human than when you went? It's a staggering thing to say. Wow. An observation. You have lost some of your humanity by going and being wrapped up in the roar of it all. I feel like watching North End, that. <laughs> Preston North End. <laughs> That's why I say it's all around us still, you know. You, <laughs> There's echoes everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Do you think part of it is maybe just sort of going along with the crowd? Oh, yes, a lot of it. Well, it's your society and what you talk about. and every, People gambled their lives away virtually at chariot races and were absolutely addicted to it. Uh, it was what you talked about. You created mosaic floors with your favourite gladiators who were the pop stars of their day. And people did know what death was like. They did. We're very uh, protected from it. 
we don't have to carry a sword and we're not going to be called up to fight with a sword hand-to-hand to people. If you are, I should think there has to be some desensitising going on. I think we... I'm sure yeah. I'm sure we've mentioned on the past that it's quite strange we we have these drones now warfare mm-hmm. is becoming more and more remote and it and it's some guy in a bulk in a bunker in front of a keyboard who's pressing the button whereas 2000 years ago it was a piece yeah. of iron or steel in your hand and yeah. you've had to yeah. physically do it yeah you have to, you only have to read homer or virgil the great epic poets and read their battle scenes and there comes a point where you go, I actually don't want to know what colour the brain is, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you just go, no, no, I don't need to know this. <laughs> but the, to them, it's part of their entertainment. And they're not being gory. It's just a fact. Yeah. You know, the sword hit this and the whatever. Uh, there's no uh, sens- sensationalising of it at all. It's it's just I, most people skip these bits in the epic <laughs> and read the nice myths about the Cyclops and things like that, uh, and it's great poetry. But that's what the audience not only could cope with, but felt they weren't if they hadn't got battles, they hadn't got the real deal. Mm, yeah, so it's, it's scary. Mm. And they but used at the same to time, human, you know. Mm. They they used to. Um... I read once that they would they would fill the Colosseum with water and and use do these epic sea battles. Yeah, it's very debated. Is um, it? It'd be very hard to make waterproof. You can. They did create lakes and they they did have mock sea battles and they would reenact great sea battles of history. And there was one famous one where I think there was a bit of a mutiny going on and they engineered it so that the wrong people won, and there was trouble to put it mildly. Yeah. Because it's meant to be a reenactment of something. You're meant to be thrilled to the fact that the Romans are winning or whoever are winning. Uh, you're watching history in action, as it were, but really you're watching a bit of propaganda in action. Yeah, and I yeah. think I, I'm, I'm, I might be wrong, but I think that story was echoed in the Ridley Scott film Gladiator. It was, yeah. There was a part where the Carthaginians were winning. It was, was, yeah. was uh, Russell Crowe cast as one of the Carthaginians he was yeah yeah and then he and they, they get angry don't they because he starts winning again. <laughs> but he can't but they do the thumbs up don't they rather than the thumbs down for him so he gets to survive ah uh, yes yeah. He, yeah he had the crowd on his side didn't he I mean this is playing into that celebrity you know we live in a culture that's dominated by celebrity today what was they the sort were, of too. Roman equivalent yeah. Because if a gladiator really entertained, if he fought 30, 40 times, uh, you'd, start, you'd really start to fade after a while. But what they were, could do is present him with a wooden sword. It was called the Rudis, the, the sort of like a rude manger. It's an unfinished sword uh, made of wood. And this was his symbol that he had his freedom. And the idea is, is that you've entertained us enough. Now go off and do your own thing, which will be to train other gladiators to entertain us. But the, all we know about the thumb thing is two words in one text. The, with the turned thumb is all they say. So we imagine that it's not just doing this, because you couldn't see that. You'd have <laughs> yeah. to be doing a Mexican way, like, yeah. yeah them them giant thumb finger. <laughs> thumb finger number one. Exactly. <laughs> they not have foam, they're foam thumbs. So, so. <laughs> they didn't know. But there must have been a very big gesture and uh, to, because they didn't want, what happened is if somebody fell and was about to be killed, a referee with a stick, and you see them in the mosaics, 
sometimes with wings on the back, which is very weird. It's all about some mythological thing. And they would stop the fight and a bit like, you know, boxing when somebody's down, you stop it. And then you'd say, well, do you want him to survive or not? And uh, if he was boring, then you kill him. Nice. If he's entertaining and you want him to carry on fighting for you, then the, you get the turned thumb that says, mm. let him live. It'd make um, X Factor more interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a side to reality TV that's actually quite yeah. scary. This is the very thin end of a wedge. Because it you is, don't watch it? it and think, what is that person going through? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shout and isn't it? Yes. Yeah, there's an element of voyeurism, isn't there, about it, I think. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. And so the gladiators, were they, I mean, were they all slaves? Or were some of them like professionals, mm-hmm. like the celebrities of today? Uh, well, they'll all be owned by somebody, uh, so slaves. But as the empire went further on, you got people who wanted that celebrity. They wanted their 10 minutes of fame, and people chose to become gladiators. Wow. And there were even women who chose to become gladiators because that was where you got fame. And if you became free at the end of it, you got it made. If you were a chariot driver, you could be amongst the richest people in the world, even though you were owned to start with. Uh, your owner would be even richer. <laughs> you could be mega rich if you were a chariot driver. Really? Like being a top footballer. Yeah. So what is a chariot driver? Is that like in a race, with the racing yes, chariot? in a race, sorry, yes, right, the, okay. the chariot racing, you know, the Ben-Hur stuff. Right, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you could also die. Uh, yeah. I did. A, I was on tour, and uh, the, the lecturer, I was actually a guest on the tour. I was, I was uh, seeing how the company worked, really. So I was there, and we went around one of the great circuses, one of the great chariot places, and you get this thin piece down the middle, the spina, it's called, like a spine. And the chariots go down one side and turn around and come back, like on Ben-Hur. But there could be 12 four-horse chariots thundering down there. And they're huge. The size of them when you're in them and walking around them is just phenomenal. And you get to the end, and there's this tiny pointy end. And he, we walked along side by side, and he said, now, we, imagine you are a charioteer. And I was actually quite scared just trying to even walk across mm. with 12 of us, let alone 12 four-horse chariots going at breakneck speed. Wow. It was, you realise that this is where everything happened. That was the place to sit where you watch the accidents happen. Mm. Um, very, very, very dangerous sport indeed. Yeah. That was dangerous. Like- part of life so would that be sort of the ancient version of of drag racing today because as far as i i I know the romans weren't really big into chariots in a military capacity it was more of an eastern thing wasn't it chariots uh well chariots for homer were think something you rode into battle on you you leapt off fort and then you leapt back on and rode to the next center of attention as it were the romans nearly got defeated by the brits because we had brilliant little like pit pony type of chariots and we could turn on a sixpence and we got up and ran along the bit between the horses and leapt off and all sorts of things they didn't they liked to be legionaries they liked to be on foot they did have cavalries and there's plenty of evidence for it but they liked to be an army of soldiers side by side band of brothers you know holding the shield in front of you and your sword or your spear the first and working together not being a solitary charioteer because you can't be shoulder to shoulder as a chariot. Mm. So yeah, it wasn't their favourite thing, but the chariot racing, 
very different. Exciting yeah. stuff. Today's mm. the ancient equivalent of the Premier League. I remember re- I remember reading Their about teams, um, you know. Which... Their teams, there were different colours, uh, red, blue, yeah. green, white. And there's a wonderful story that which is exactly like football, in that the red team, the owner of the red team, they went off to race the horses at another town and he had homing pigeons, which he painted red. Don't do this at home. Uh, but <laughs> painted his homing pigeons red. And he said to his hometown, if the p- pigeons arrive back, painted red, obviously, then you know we've won. And what he was really saying was make sure that the ticket day, <laughs> the parade is ready for the triumphal return for us. Wow. So the team, winning team can come to its hometown and go, we are the champions. <laughs> it's just like it, isn't it? <laughs> I remember, and I'm sure I mentioned it maybe like 50 odd episodes ago, but there was um, during um, the Byzantine period um there was an earthquake and the theodosian walls were damaged and it was when attila the hun was threatening and uh, the way they motivated the citizens to rebuild the walls quicker was like they pitted the two favorite chariot teams against each other so they had the the teams of the blue chariot team building one part and the and the fans of the green chariot team building the other part and they were using that as a motivation to egg them on it's absolutely brilliant it's comp- competition is ingrained in us Rather, there's a lovely story that goes even further back in history. Is if you go up to Orkney and there's the the uh, ring of Brodga with the great standing stones, each stone is from a different part of Orkney of the islands, and you can't help but think that somebody stood in the middle, blew a whistle, and said, "Right, go get your stones." (laughs) 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 But bear in mind that your average age was late twenties if you were lucky. So your adult male um, population is going to be uh, young, very young adults. So you've got a lot of testosterone flowing. And you can imagine how it would be this. Go and uh, you can imagine them getting there going, oh, ours isn't the biggest. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there must have been, however, it sounds flippant, but there must have been. Yeah. It, it, it just brings it all to life. There's an energy about the whole thing. Well, the thing we've got to remember is they're the same as us. They're the same people as us with the same hopes and fears and motivations and, yeah. you know. The- I, I, it's often the a challenge I have of a, some guests on tours because you say it's 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago or, you know, if you're talking about cave art, you know, 15,000 years ago or whatever, and you start to think of knuckle-dragging you know, wearing a bit of lion skin around you. So as exactly the same as us. <laughs> exactly the same. Homo sapiens, since Homo sapiens appeared, has exactly the same brain capacity. We haven't evolved particularly in that sense. So those people who were painting on the cave walls have as much capacity for reasoning and emotion and abstract thought and all of that that we have. It's just that they don't have the same technology and they have mm-hmm. different social ways. So that's the only difference. If you took a, a Neolithic, a Stone Age baby at the moment of birth and a modern baby at the moment of birth and somehow swapped them, both would cope quite well growing up. They would not, they're not different species. They would just grow up thinking that this was their world. Yeah, it's um, wild, isn't it? Mm, Products uh, of our environments. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, in nature and nurture is yeah, <laughs> it's what you you grow up to to thinking 
and mm. thinking is normal as mm. well. Yeah. I was just just going to ask then as well. You mentioned that you kind of like the average age was was. Do you say late twenties in the Orkneys? Well, Neolithic first five thousand yeah. years ago. Yes. So is that yeah. across kind of all kind of populations at around about that time? And that was like the average lifespan, was it for an adult? Or it seems to be. Really? Uh, there's a lot of science going into it now, mm. uh, and it, actually every week it seems there's something in the news about archaeology. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's gone. They've just found where the big sarsen stones from Stonehenge were were yeah. quarried, which is mm-hmm. not far down the road in Marlborough from it. And the week before, or two weeks before, there was something else uh, that was linked with Stonehenge as well. And I expect there'll be more coming out of Orkney, news coming out of Orkney soon as well. And there is something fairly major about once a month Mm. that changes the way we think. So you you can say you can't say anything for definite with archaeology. You say at the moment we believe, yeah. and you use a thesaurus and say, well, how else can I say possibly and maybe? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, um... And I uh, I did a, a radio interview, and they said, oh, so if you get three archaeologists in the room, they'll all have different ideas. I said, yeah, yeah there'll be six opinions at least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, um... so, it's the, a very active thing. Mm. The place you were at at Orkney, which was what, about five thousand years ago, yeah. is yeah. that would that be one of the oldest settlements we've found so far in in the British Isles? How far do we go? Can uh, how far back does the evidence go over here? Yeah, it's a uh, little. It's it is the earliest. Well, three uh, that's three thousand BC, but somewhere between three and four thousand years ago, people began to settle down permanently. And we've got signs of human species going back 700,000 years. But Homo sapiens is much more recent it's, uh, because we had the Ice Age. It moved right. people out for a while. And, but for settling down permanently, it is about 3,500 years ago. So this is uh, the... 5,500 years ago, 3,000... 5,500 <laughs> years ago, 3,500 BC. So this is yeah. the move from, from hunter-gatherer to yeah. sedentary and, and farming, yeah. I presume? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, once you settle down and you farm, which is a, not a sensible thing to do because you can have famine quite quickly, but you don't need everybody hunting all the time. And you can settle down and you can have different material goods, you can have new technologies, and you start to get people doing specialist jobs and the there is something staggering happens when people do that there's a an exponential explosion in creativity that goes on as a result spare time isn't it it is yeah although hunter gathering has quite a bit of spare time mm. i remember watching a documentary with amazon you know tribal people and they were just about they were settled down to be fair and he said what do you mean you go to work <laughs> So we go out, we get our food, we come back and play with the kids. Yeah, sounds great, <laughs> that. And there, yeah. Can we go backwards? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, mm, yeah, maybe they have a point. <laughs> but you, mm. you can build specialist things going on. You have a lot more integration and people go, there's much more connection between cultures because you acquire a yeah. distinctive culture. Then you bump into another one and they go, oh, that's nice. And you start to swap ideas and stories and, it yeah. just changes the speed that we are creative. Mm. And I guess one of the, the biggest pluses, <coughs> excuse me, is when mm. you start to generate a surplus 
because mm. then that opens the door to trade and economics and well, well we know they were trading before just in groups because you have if you settle down on an island which doesn't have what you need you have to swap it with somebody else but they must have been moving around and swapping things beforehand but to do it in an organized way yes to have a surplus of whatever it is like Cyprus was the copper island so it did very well because people needed copper so they swapped it and other places don't have much food the Phoenicians were very good at that they stayed on fringes of places they weren't great farmers but they traded things from all over the Mediterranean uh, in return for their food really Um, this is going back to sort of the Bronze Age really isn't it 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 blows my mind how interconnected the the not well you can't say the world because we don't know but the mediterranean world how yes. interconnected uh, things were you know before during the bronze age yeah if the mediterranean wasn't <coughs> the shape it is and the way it is history could have been very different but because the way the currents go and because greece is very mountainous so you live on the shores and all of that because people did sail around they connected and they had little groups of cultures so you have egypt and then you have the phoenicians you have people in distinct places but they can get to each other easily well not as easily as we would but relatively easily and they can connect all these different cultures which just as i say exponentially blows the the idea of creativity and concepts and uh, epic stories and mythology and religion they start to feed off each other and the connectivity is the, the huge thing. When I first went to the British Museum to talk about doing talks for them, I said, what's your ethos at the moment, just to check we're on the same page? And said, oh, connectivity, about making people realise how connected we are. And I was, I've always spent 10 minutes sleeping around the room almost because I was going, that's exactly what I show people all the time. <laughs> is that the Bronze Age was so connected. I mean, they were either fighting each other or trading with each other or swapping stories. Yeah, so the trade leads leads to cultural uh, connectivity and, and transposition as well, swapping stories and and there was a lot of intermarrying as well between the the leaders, wasn't there? The elites. We're, it's actually a big area of study at the moment. That was another thing that came out fairly recently. A Neolithic chief that's in uh, Newgrange in Ireland was buried in Newgrange. They found out that his parents, looking at his DNA, his parents must have been brother and sister to each other. And that follows with where you have very connected family royalty, where you keep it in the family. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, I think I read that one. Yeah. And that then makes you have families who are connected with the other royal families. You keep it to yourself. Yeah. It's very. It's a pattern that happens over and over again. And In the Bronze Age, you see that the elite are connecting with each other. And later on, even in the archaic Greece, the elite are talking about an elite world where they swap gifts and they sing poetry, uh, but they're talking only to the elite. And it really is becoming very alive at the moment, the debate. In in the Armana letters, there'll be like a letter from, say, the king of the Hittites to the pharaoh of egypt and he'll call him my brother or my father or you know the yeah uh, and we just assumed it was um the polite yeah. thing that you did you know my brother king my fellow king you saw my band of brothers sort of thing 
No, he's married to my sister. Perhaps they were brothers. <laughs> or at least cousin of some sort. Maybe there was, and the marrying connections would have mm. been strong because you're less likely to go to war with somebody if your sister is married to them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so you keep your connections. And that's how the Roman Republic worked and why they fell out when one of them one of the girls fell ill, died. You know, suddenly, oh, goody, I can fight you now. <laughs> so yeah. that, that was New Grange, was it? What period is that? that That's 5,000 years ago. Crikey, really? And yet there was a very, uh, not advanced, I don't want to use an opposite of the word primitive, if you see what I mean, because it wasn't primitive at all. If you can build that, you're not primitive. But it's not what we tend to think of as chieftains in Ireland, perhaps. Mm. And yet it's certainly making us think, well, perhaps we should go and do more DNA with more chieftains, but we don't find the bodies normally. Right. Yeah. Would that be because they, they, didn't, they didn't bury their dead, maybe? I, mean, I was thinking about how, how modern society is going to be recorded in the, in the archaeological <laughs> You know, in the far future, there's, there's not many people we'll be being buried. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're all being cremated. Cremated, and we, you find ashes, but you don't get much information out of them. No. Maybe they'll be able to by then. Um, also, you know, our information is on these machines, which you can't read in 10 years' time, let alone 3,000. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we are going to be, unless they happen by chance to find the British Library under its bomb-proof and everything else shelter, um, going to look very different to what we are, which is a salutary lesson for archaeologists. We only see the stones, the things that chance survive, and yet you go to the Neolithic world and think of it full of organic material, think of it full of rugs and string bags and wicker baskets, and all of that. Now, Must Farm, do you know the Bronze Age house that burnt down? is in Cambridgeshire a couple of years ago. It was found. No, I don't remember one in uh, sort of Norfolk Broads or something. Yeah, that's it's that's that way. Yeah, mm. where it was on a uh, posts. Yeah, I it, think so. Yeah, that in the lake. Yeah. They burnt down one day and they found it. Now and the the roof has literally just collapsed inwards. They can see the shape of the building from the way the roof has fallen. It sank into the mud and lots of organic goods have been found. Things like string and wooden materials, whole sets of bowls and things like that. And suddenly, the house is full of material, absolutely chock full. And we just don't think of that when we walk in a stony ruin. No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you took everything in your room around you that's made from something that's organic, you know, your wallpaper, your books, and took all the metal down to, you know, corroded parts, mm. what would be left? Yeah. Not a lot. Yeah. A lot. Not so, yeah. you know, the imaginative school of archaeology has to be alive and well. <laughs> you know, it almost makes me think sometimes that maybe the reason they built things out of mon mon monolithic megaliths is because yeah. it would stand the test of time, and maybe they even knew that back then. Yeah, it, yeah almost certainly. So. If you're living, I mean, being an archaeologist, I spent 10 years on one site every week, once a week, every week. And we knew that if you left something up there, you went back a week later, it was not in a good condition. <laughs> Within a week, in the rain and the mud and everything else, if you're in the right conditions, it, things disappear, corrode, get beat. They would have known that things fall apart. Mm -hmm. So you use stone to last forever. And they're 
they were saying, well, maybe they built houses for the dead out of stone. And now they're going, oh, we think they built the stone houses for the dead so they didn't fall down around the ancestors. And then went, what a good idea to build in stone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Whereas wood worked perfectly fine. But then the dawning realisation that stone is a bit more permanent and perhaps better. Yeah. Uh, Perhaps it was that way around. Three little pigs. (laughs) 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 It's three little pigs, yeah. Yeah, what the three little pigs? Yeah, roundhouses forever, (laughs) you know, since we'd first settled down. Why would you not do it? Yeah. A whole new concept, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, the, what the three li- little pigs don't tell you is how much more labour-intensive it is. That's one issue, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Orkney's very lucky, whereas if you walk on the shore, the stone, this sort of a mudstone, is laid down very flat, and they laid down in slabs that are about less than a foot deep, but each one on top of each other. You can go on the shore and quite literally pick up a piece of flat stone that you can carry and go and take it, put it down, go and get another one, put it beside it, fit it neatly together, and create a wall of stones without having to shape any stones at all. Right. Yeah. Which is why Orkney is the archaeological you know, miracle place for, for us to go, because so much survives. I was just going to ask then, yeah, when you, you sort of said that you, you can go into the houses that are built with those um, flat stones, like dry stone wall or whatever, um, how intact was that found was it buried, found buried, and the walls yeah. were there with some kind of roost? What happens, yeah, is that they, they built them, the sea has risen since that time. So the houses were on a hillside, but the sea has risen, and now they're often on a shoreline. And the shorelines get quite sandy, and like Scarra Bray was covered by sand dunes, quite a lot of them got covered by sand dunes. Because if you ah, have a, okay. an upright structure with its door facing perhaps the sea, mm-hmm. the wind, shall we say, if you have even a pond in your garden that you empty and you leave it open, very, very quickly, leaves and dust and soil, <laughs> it'll be full within a year. Not mm-hmm. a compacted soil, but it'll be full. Right. And then other soil blows up and it just mounds up over the top of it. Really? Very that quick? quickly. Very okay. quickly. But when people say, why do you dig? Why is it not standing up? From the?" But I can remember that realisation when I was 11, realising things are buried. Mm-hmm. Okay, wouldn't it be great? <laughs> be the one that finds it. It was up in Vindolanda, it was chucking down my rain, and my parents had no history of their soul. They said, Will you come again, the car? And I'm thinking, ah, but I couldn't say I've just had a road to Damascus moment. I didn't know how to explain that. <laughs> <laughs> but I just realized things fill up quickly. And if it fills up quickly enough, yeah. it will then also hold everything upright. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's how and then so they, yeah, so they were found pretty much intact then, except maybe like the roof gone or something. Roof's gone and yeah. not much in them. Either. Right, okay. So presumably people had left. I was so going to say, why, then, sorry. I was going to say, why, why do you think they were abandoned then? That's what It's uh, something they're hoping to find in Nessa Brodka, uh, especially because, I don't know if you know, the Nessa Brodka is a central spot in Orkney. There's a lock on each side of it, and it's in a sort of natural basin, a huge area it's a fantastic place to stand you're, you're attracted to it even now without all of their whatever it is that they made of it in their heads and they they found these temples for want of another name big non-domestic ritualized ceremonial buildings that are not settlements and they're surrounded by a wall they're set apart and one of them 
had a massive, massive feast where hundreds of cattle were killed within a short span. They had this massive farewell feast, and then they closed up shop. Really? Uh, we don't know why. It's the end of the Neolithic on Orkney. Um, was it just that the cultural ways were wrong? We know that they'd sealed up some of the tombs and with late Neolithic items on the outside had had a party as they closed them up. Um, the Bronze Age came in and they didn't do things the same way and we think there was a genetic change. Oh. It seems like the Neolithic DNA was virtually wiped out in some way or not violently necessarily. Perhaps, like, perhaps there was it's a weaker gene or something, but there's certainly something that changed dramatically, and the old ways weren't the ways to do it anymore. So we had a famine. Who knows? You know, yeah. mm. I was just but possibly people came, kind of thing, other from a different part of the world or part oh, of Europe but, or wherever. They didn't do things in a yeah. monumental way, right? Okay, yeah. so it doesn't seem so obvious on the landscape. Right. They didn't do the big stones. They're little dumpy ones. You get dumpy <laughs> <things>. <laughs> it's easier, <laughs> aren't they? Yeah, just totally different mindset from Europe. Right. So it, it could have strange. been it could have been famine or or conquest or maybe they were just out competed. Maybe it, it could be, or maybe maybe there was some disease or famine or something or disease. Yeah. Why we don't know. Yeah. Um, well, maybe others be. just walked in. You know. Mm. Maybe they weren't, their DNA was sufficiently different, they were immune to something, we don't know. Mm. I mean, yeah. slaughtering a load of cattle, I mean, you could sort of interpret that as sort of a, an offering. You could, you could. They put the, the heads and several of the long bones, especially laid it around the outside walls wow. of this temple. So they have carefully did something sacred, for want of another word, yeah. Yeah, something symbolic. What was um, happening in the skies? Hmm? Was there any Sorry? astronomical events going going on back then? I guess that's good been... No idea. Well. It's a good question to ask, actually. Mm. Uh, we should ask some astronomers to tell us what was going on then, really. Don't know. I mean, you can, you can look back at the record. Mm-hmm. Well, you might be able to. An archaeologist would go, huh? (laughs) (laughs) We all have our skills. (laughs) Our nose in the ground. (laughs) We remember to look up occasionally. (laughs) Well, there is sort of a a subset or a sub-discipline called archaeoastronomy, isn't there? There is. Who are people who do this? Because actually it does matter where things are positioned. Yeah, well, isn't that one of the theories about Stonehenge, in that it's some way of of charting the skies and the seasons? If you want to farm there are things you need to know and one of them is when to plant your seed where it's all right looking at a diary but if you don't have a diary you need to know that this point of the year has come and that you count the days or whatever till the next point and you need to know after what after what point do you sow your seed so the solstice is the easiest point at which to say well the sun has set to that point and then it seems to change so it's, it's its lowest point of the year sort of thing where it sets and then it changes. So that's the easy one with a couple of sticks watched over a few years. You can work that out. And that's why your tombs are angled and your stones are angled. Yeah. Not only because the sun goes into the tomb and that would be resurrection of the new spring and all of that it could be for the tomb uh, uh, inhabitants, should we say. <laughs> but also it would be a good place to stand if you have 
priestly farmers or whatever to say at this point, this is the point when it has hit the far wall on this day, the sun. And now we know the year is turning. And then they would also know where the sun set at different times. They'd know where the stars, where the constellations set. Um, When you live outside, pretty much, you're very attuned to it. Remember, the sky would have been no Mm -hmm. light pollution at all. It would be like the desert stars, Mm -hmm. absolutely Mm -hmm. full of stars. Now, when I was on the site for 10 years, I knew people, I used to say, oh, um, time to pack up. And they said, you do not wear a watch. How do you know? And I say, because I know that when the sun, I just noticed over time that, you know, oh, it's four o'clock, we should be sorting out. And I noticed the sun was always in the same particular point. Now, it could be just over the horizon in winter, or it could be up here, but it was always in that line. Mm-hmm. So when the sun reached that point, well, I, was, I just automatically triggered to say, oh, it must be time to, I didn't think oh, it was behind that particular tree or anything, I just knew. Yeah. Became instinctive. I could also tell you it's going to rain in half an hour. Pack up quick, but (laughs) (laughs) smells like thunder. So so you get yeah, you get very attuned. Yeah. To but if you only live twenty something years, it's hard to pass on the knowledge. So you need something Mm. permanent, and you need to say, well, when it hits that stone there, my boy, that's Mm. when you need to. (laughs) You're twenty eight. Yes, exactly. And it needs to be something you can't move either. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, trees fall down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The bigger, the better. Uh, yeah. And you find that standing at the Nessa Brodka, you can stand and look round a lot of the landscape of Orkney. And, yeah, there's dips and there's hollows. And I can't help but think you'd know at what point that dip would be for the line of constellation or sun or whatever because it's a fantastic place to stand. And when they had the eclipse, apparently 2,000 locals went and stood in the ring of vodka because they just felt it was the right thing to be. Wow, yeah. So they, they would use they would use um, artefacts in the landscape as well as things that they'd made themselves as sort of sighting positions. Definitely, yeah. Definitely. So it's all going on up here, you see, yeah. but without the technology up mm. in the brain, it's all going on. Mm. Uh, with just as much intelligence as we have. Uh, last summer, I, I visited Rudston Monolith. Oh, yeah, in, amazing. Uh, in Yorkshire, yeah. and you <laughs> just Massive, tall stone. <laughs> you're just driving down this country road and you come round a bend and you, you there's a church and in the graveyard there's this stone that's about 30, 40 feet tall and about six feet wide. And you think, yeah. how on earth did they get that there? yeah. And you think, why would they do it? But why do we do things that are difficult? Mm. I think it's the humor, it's ingrained in us to accept a challenge. And also, there's a, everybody who's had teenage kids knows that there's this, oh, I'm not going to do it your way, rebellion. And, you know, I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to, every generation thinks it's new. And every generation will try to do something different, which is a right pain when you're the parent. But, (laughs) It's actually the driving force for civilization, because every generation wants to move us on a little bit, wants yeah. to change. And if you're not got rapid change, you want to make a difference by perhaps putting something in the landscape. You want to make your mark. Mm. But that, that monolith is amazing. I was digging at Starkar, the, the Mesolithic site, and they said, you have seen Rudston monolith, haven't you? And I went, actually, no. They went, it's only down the road. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I came back and they were going to say, we were going to say, what did you think of it? But we can tell. <laughs> <laughs> Just amazing. I mean, I was reading recently about um, Herod's temple, the second temple in Jerusalem. And, and I think there's the stones still there, some of his original stones. And they've estimated some of them weigh about 600 tonnes. Huge stones. You just think yeah. how on earth? We don't how on know earth? how they moved them. And uh, I think we're missing something uh, fundamental. Like they did a documentary in Orkney, and one of the farmers said, well, my dad used seaweed. <laughs> and they put seaweed down and put the rock on top of it, and they nearly had to run down the hill after it. Yeah, <laughs> right. There's no friction yeah. at all. Yeah. And people have talked about on ice and frosty days when it's frozen to get rid of the friction. But there's something, something common sense, but at the same time it has to be a challenge because why would you do it otherwise? Mm. Yeah. So there has to be something that by doing this we have proven something. Mm. Is it not another possibility that you just took an incredibly long time to do it, basically? Yes. But I don't know, is, is it not evidence to say that it was all complete within a certain time span or done over... You know, like, uh, well, I mean, Stonehenge changed for a thousand years. It's like looking at right, a modern okay. church. Uh, mm. A thousand years before it was begun. Right, and okay. Over the years, they moved things around and they swapped right. over things. And what we see is the finished product was tumbled. But, mm. but it was people change things and move things and they decide they want different stones in different places and they want wood ones and they want stone ones. Right. They want horseshoes and they don't want horseshoes. <laughs> mm. I mean... Could could part of the changes be due to the procession of the equinoxes? Because the night over a period of a thousand years, the night sky will will change. Yeah, it does change. I don't know how much it changes over hundreds of years. It's it's one degree every seventy two years, roughly. The the solstice. So over a thousand years. It's, how it, much is that? <laughs> well, I think if you, if you looked at the moon in the night yeah. sky, that would be roughly a degree. Of, of latitude yeah. or longitude, whichever yeah. it is. So one degree every 72 years. So after a thousand years, I mean, Ooh. I don't know. Well, I don't gone, know. We've gone all the way around then, wouldn't it? No, a processional a processional cycles just shy of 26,000 years. That's the goal all, right, all yeah. the way around. All right, okay. Yeah. You'd be very disappointed if you'd started and then 27,000 years later, you're why have we been doing this? He should have left me where he was. Did you you ever see the uh, April Fool's Day that they had about Stonehenge? Because somebody was doing some work and they had a JCB, which is always a nightmare thing to have near an archaeological site. And there was was a photograph of a JCB at Stonehenge and somebody had put beneath it, oh, this is the National Trust or English Heritage or whoever, just realigning the stones for British summertime. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. So, yes, pure spoof, Um, but... I was just going to ask as well, whilst we're on Stonehenge, about the big holes. Oh, yes. Well, do you know anything more about the big holes other than just big holes? Everywhere? I mean, there were big holes and there was a huge, huge sort of C-shaped enclosure thing of right. them. And that, that, I mean, they're huge. Would you be standing, could you stand in the centre of them? I don't know. It'd be so mm-hmm. big. Uh, it's, as with all things, you make a discovery in archaeology 
you've got several questions you wanted answering when you started to explore, like we think the holes are they in a shape? Yes, they are. There's a, there is a pattern mm. to this. But you answer one question and you get ten more. Yeah. <laughs> are they so, indentations yeah. from the spaceship landing legs? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's um, like we have uh, cup and ring marks from the Bronze Age where they hollow out a cup and sometimes hollow out a ring around it and sometimes they have several of them joined together. And I was chatting to an expert, and I said, so how many theories are we up to now? He said, oh, about 142. <laughs> like, really? But well, when you take the aliens out, it's down to about 39. <laughs> it seems to me with the, um, the Stonehenge thing is that these sites, uh, it's probably a sweeping generalisation, but a lot of these sites are actually a lot more extensive than what you find on the surface mm. sometimes. I mean... All we've got is the tip of an iceberg. Yeah. There will have been so many other things. Some of it, I mean, there may be wooden post holes around somewhere as well that somebody put in, but there will have been all sorts of activity around them as mm-hmm. well that we have no evidence for at all. Yeah. Uh, if you took a, a modern church or a church 30 years ago, say, you would never come up with the idea that it was used for jumble sales. <laughs> it's just so much that unless you have written words you can't yeah, you would I never now. Get there, would you? and you know if you took the cross off the church this is a, a thing I frequently say they say well what did they believe I'm going well look if you had no writing now and there was no recollection there's no inscriptions there was no bible or prayer book or books about it and you had this cross a loose one that was just lying on the floor. Two sticks, one's longer than the other, one's fixed to the other, slightly nearer the top, well, nearer the top than the other end, or is it nearer the bottom than the other end? Mm. You can turn it round, but perhaps it stood up as well. Um, does it go that way up, that way up, <laughs> that way up? Is it decoration? Is it something they buried? Is it? You would never in a million years get to an Easter story of a cross. Mm-hmm. It's more Never. like a sword, I suppose, yes, with a exactly. handle in it. And a... Oh, oh! give kid a, a cross and they'll play swords with it all day. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, you will never get that. And when we find things like the cup and ring, and when we find bits of art in the Neolithic, and there's no writing, same with the early Bronze Age, we can't know. But what we do know is that there are certainly stories being told and handed down. And the art will be reflections of it. Why in the Neolithic does that art only consist of lines and dots and there's nothing representative? And yet 15,000 years ago, we were drawing beautiful bisons on art, on caves. Mm-hmm. This... And suddenly there's no representative art at all. Mm. So what's the stories that those hash marks and lozenge shapes and everything else, which are common and part of the culture... What could they represent? It's almost like it's become too ethereal to put down in a in a real sense, and we will never know until somebody finds somebody drew a cartoon of it, which obviously they're not going to have done. Yeah, <laughs> it's so frustrating. But we have to remember that they were like us, and stories are what everything is about. Every media we do is a story, whether we're doing this or. It's, newspapers or television or radio every program is what's our story today in some form or other yeah 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 
<laughs> so that's what we do as a species. Mm. Uh, mm. I get the impression sometimes in thinking, you know, we, we tend to think of technology as linear and it's a constant progression. Yeah. And, you know, once you start reading about things like the collapse of the Bronze Age and stuff, you realise mm. that, no, it wasn't. Sometimes we've had to take big steps backwards. Mm. And, you know, you talk about the cave art. I mean, we had guests, Bernie Taylor on a few weeks ago, didn't we? Talking about the mm. Neolithic cave art, mm. and you see, and you see these amazing pictures in Chavot Cave and and uh, France and Spain. I think mainly they've been found. Mm. And then, yep. from what you're saying in the in the Neolithic period, it's kind of drops off, and maybe it's less expressive and less well, competent. Taboo. Mm. The only thing you get are little figurines of humans. Well, little fertility figures. It seems to be often mm. female figures. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's in Britain anyway. I mean, there's other arts that's developing in the Mediterranean a bit, but it's almost like it's taboo. You don't draw the real thing. It's almost like you're cursing it if you draw what you hunt or something. Mm. And why did their diet suddenly not have much seafood when the Mesolithic was full of it? Right. And all of the isotopes and everything mm. else says that people were not eating their seafood. A bit like my and kids. <laughs> Yes. So, was there something about the sea mm. that there was a story? Yeah, it was just for some reason it was part of myth or I won't say religion. Religion is the rites that you do, uh, but about what you believe about the gods or the spirits of the dead. The Bronze Age put a lot of things into the water, into the liminal spaces on the shores and on lakes. You know, these all these bent swords and things that we find. Now, I have a theory that they're all bent because in the beginning, if you put a gold sword, a bronze sword in there, somebody's going to sneak in at midnight and take mm. it, aren't they? So, yeah. so mm. you would ritually kill it, but it's more about making sure at the beginning, and later on it becomes what you do, but at the beginning it would have... But why are they putting these very expensive items into the water? Mm. must be something so important, something life and death level, and therefore it changes the way you view the water. Wow. Seems like an offering, maybe, doesn't it? It's of some sort of some kind of god or something like that. Exactly, definitely. I think one yeah. of, one of the main ways we we learn about the really ancient past is through grave goods, isn't it? it? That's where things stay intact. They're buried in the ground, so they're then going to stay unless somebody disturbs the ground. Yeah. You all the wonderful vases we see from the Greek vases, most of them are from graves because they'd mm-hmm. never survive otherwise, and <laughs> you. Know, Thank goodness they put things in their graves. Otherwise, what would we have left? That's um, going, going back to what we're talking about before about creme- cremation, isn't it? And yeah, you know, if, if our civilization but, ended tomorrow in, in a thousand years, there wouldn't be much left. There wouldn't be much no, sign of it. Even the motorways would be grown over, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, well grown over by then, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. and look at your garden and pay no attention to it for a summer, and you realise that it soon starts to take over. <laughs> So have a look now, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it's a very fragile thing. Mm. It, and uh, cultures come and go. Uh, and as an ancient historian, over the last decade, every year when I've been teaching something, and I might teach the same course or come up with the same uh, you know, story or something, and each time, if a year has gone by, I'll go, oh, well, that's interesting because I'm – thinking of it now with a different relevance to how I thought of it last year. And obviously things that come up with COVID are going to have a different relevance. When mm. Brexit started, there were other things that people went, mm. oh, 
<laughs> and you know, politicians and orators in Rome. We did a course on Cicero, and people were sort of going, oh, yes, well, we don't have anyone like that now, do we, <laughs> with some of the things that were being said. And everything reflects on what we do now. And we look at it in the past and we, we find different things jump out at us, depending on what we are going through at the time. Because in 10 years' time, something else might jump out at us. It doesn't mean it's invalid now, but you might have another idea that goes, oh, actually, with a new insight I have now, I can see something fresh. Yeah. So it, it does, however hard you try to not let the present impact on what you're looking at, you are influenced by it. But the other side of the coin is that we can look at the past and always find something that relates to now because it's all about being a human being. (laughs) (laughs) I had a couple of ladies in a class on Latin and every class I saw one of them nudge the other and the other one had been nudged would ask something completely off-piste. And I'd go, okay, I could see this was a game going on. And so i go, well, funny you should say that, actually, because back in so-and-so, and I'd find something it related to. And we were driving up to Vindolanda for a day out, and I saw this nudge in the mirror, and I thought, here we go. And uh, she asked me something. I said, well, funny you should say that, because... And there was a pause. And she said, is there nothing you can't relate to the ancient world? <laughs> no. Went, actually, no. Because yeah. if you're talking about a car, you're talking about transport and how long it took to get places and everything we do, people have done before, mm-hmm. but in a different way because of technology. Mm-hmm. And the technology might have seemed to have improved, but it might have created new problems. And it, I often say that the only thing that changes is technology and the society rules. Yeah. Otherwise, we're still the same, mm-hmm. which is what makes it fascinating. Indeed. Very fascinating. I've found this conversation yeah, very fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Gillian, why don't you tell us about um, what's coming up for you in the future and what you're working on now? Um... Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, well, of course, it's interesting times at the moment, isn't it, with COVID? Mm-hmm. And uh, in March, uh, I had the year planned out ahead of me. I had talks, I had lectures, <laughs> I had courses, I had tours, a couple of cruises I was lecturing on, and within three weeks I watched as email after email after email I mean I literally watched them pop up on the screen, and I watched my entire 12 months ahead disappear Mm. a year's work cancelled, and all of them are single gigs, it's the gig economy Mm. because now I do very little digging uh, your knees get out after a while and uh, I never want to lead another uh, project. I never want that paperwork again, so I go and guest dig occasionally. Um, so I thought, well, what am I going to do? A, I need an income. But B, this is the chance I've been waiting for to do online courses. People have said, why aren't you doing it? I can't get to Yorkshire. I can't get to your talk. Or you're down in London, but I'm in Scotland. Or we ever do online courses? And I've got one day, takes time, takes weeks to do a single course. You know, just one course, it takes weeks to create. So now is my time. So I do do online courses now. I've got one on Neolithic Orkney that uh, was the very much the maiden voyage, should we say. Uh, big hit. It's great. It's just I've tried to do it so you feel you're there as well because yeah. trying to give a sense of place is important. And the historic environment Scotland very kindly 
gave me a number of images that had you know that allowed me to use them because copyright is a big issue for online publishing. Mm. Uh, so I've managed to do these fantastic, brilliant images. So now I'm working on one. One's just been launched for Latin, beginners Latin, which is again about looking about words in English. Everything's relevant to today, and looking at bits of ancient history as well. So you get lots of things about the ancient world coming into it. And then I'll do probably some civilizations, like the Minoans, the Mycenaeans, work my way through the ancient civilizations of the Mediterranean. <coughs> I do talk, I do lecture on all of them. So I even do a talk that takes you from the beginning of the Bronze Age through to the end of Rome in an hour. Cracky. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it was possible. And one day I Do you rap as well? <laughs> that's that, that's twister numbers, that. And it just, I saw the, it's like a tapestry that just came together. I thought, I know how to do this without exhausting everyone. Uh, It just created that thread, uh, went through it. So I want to do that, but with lots of small little courses that show each one's distinct and yet each one is connected. So that's a book I've been working on and still am working on because, you know, you can't, get paid while you're working these days writing rather so eventually there'll be the book but at the moment it's the online courses next year hopefully back on on the ground back showing people around the sites and when i first did tours i was told it was was cyprus the first tour i did they said you are not to say a word on the sites the local guide is the only one allowed to lecture on the sites and they kept saying it i went i get it i get it I've got it. I understand it. So I got there. Lovely prehistoric site. Absolutely gorgeous prehistoric site. Thousands of years old. But you only get four lines on a website or you have to read academic papers. It's that sort of place. Mm. And this guide said four lines. And then turned to me and said, oh, can I invite you to tell us some more? (laughs) And I looked at her and went, ah, hadn't prepared for this one. I can tell you all about the Neolithic, but not this site because I haven't read all the papers I need. So uh, I just watched these 30 people looking at me agog, waiting for me to open my mouth. And I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell you what as an archaeologist I see and what looking at this tells me. And so I said, well, I can see that they're roundhouses. They're very close together. Why would you build them so close together when you have all this land? But it's a feature of Neolithic houses. So let's think about that. Let's think about the fact they're all the same size, apart from one. So is that what's that different for? And so I yeah. talked them through how an archaeologist looks at a site. Wow. And every site we went to, she just said, blah, 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 your turn. <laughs> <laughs> and the next year she said, oh, I love working with you. I thought, yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> you don't have to do any work. But, um, it, that gave me my unique voice, as it were, in that I don't just tell you the history. I tell you how to look at a site so that if you went to, say, a Knossos in Crete, the Minoan Palace, what I showed you meant that if you went to, say, Malia or Phaestus, some of the other palaces, you would know what to look for. So it isn't, like you said before, just dates and history. It's about getting under the skin of the culture mm. and seeing what's common for the culture, as in general, yeah, what appears more often and what is special, what makes it distinct from other cultures. Yeah. So you can identify the personality of the culture, shall we say. So that's very much how I 
take people around and how I see the archaeology of sites. So really, I just I'm into just sharing it all. That sounds great, and obviously yeah. we'll 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 have all the links on the episode show notes, and we'll be Thank we'll you. be sharing everything on social mm-hmm. media, and whatever. So make sure you check out Chilean's yeah. um, website, and um, the Facebook is quite active, I believe, as well. Yes, when I'm not up to my ears with work, I delve back into that and go, oh, by the way. Yes. So, yeah, I just can't help myself. I just like sharing. That's great. Um, Matt, Ben, have you anything to, to add before we wrap up? No, no that was it's, absolutely it's good. fantastic, Gillian. Yeah, thank you very much for, for joining us for that. Yeah, it's a great pleasure Definitely. to be invited. Thank you. Mm. Oh, thanks mm. for coming. Um, I think all I'd add is, is that I think ancient history is fundamental in understanding two of the biggest questions we ask ourselves is is why are we here and, and how did we get here and i think it's great to have people experts like you getting out there and, and spreading all this out to a wider audience and engaging in people so thank you very much for your time and, and joining us tonight i've really enjoyed it mm, so, have I. So, have I, so thank you excellent uh, just hold on the line for us jillian while we play ourselves out certainly we'll see you in a minute eavesdroppers Welcome back, eavesdroppers. That was our <laughs> chat with Gillian Hovell. Gillian Hovell, the muddy archaeologist. Mm. That was great. Hopefully Gillian will come back. Yeah, it was excellent. Excellent chat. We covered yes. loads of different stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, from the Neolithic to the Bronze Age to the Romans. What more do you want? We didn't uh, even touch on Gebekli Tepe. Uh, no, I thought that was... I can't say it, so I did, <laughs> it, did, it did It did. come to mind when you said the big stones in Herod's <laughs> temple. I thought, oh, what about that one I can't pronounce? Oh, no, you're, you're, you're talking about the Trilithon at Baalbek. Uh, oh, that's it, yeah, Baalbek. Baalbek in Lebanon, yeah, stone of the pregnant that's, mother. It's easy to pronounce. <laughs> Baalbek. Baalbek. <laughs> I, I should have asked her as well about the ancient handbags. Her take, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh well, it's quite in- it's quite interesting what she said about the uh, the dots and the dashes and the. I think I can sort of vaguely remember that on something I've watched, but it's quite interesting, isn't it? No, it's how how things are tying together. It's like you know Bernie Taylor with the Neolithic cave art. And, uh-huh. mm. so it's like thematic. And are you taking us on our own quest, Phil, and, via the podcast? And Rudolph with his his ancient wisdom. You are, aren't you? You, do no, you, you know I've, that we, me, me and Ben will not read this I, stuff, so you're making us listen to it. Yeah. I've, I've been left in Blaming. charge of booking the guests, so <laughs> you, you get what you're given. Carry <laughs> <laughs> on. Yeah. Uh, anyway, moving on. Housekeeping. Housekeeping. Oh, we've got housekeeping. Yeah, we have oh, housekeeping. This new, a new segment. Oh, no, it's just a generalisation. We need iTunes reviews. Oh. Um, hang on a minute. I think we have a, a new iTunes review. Oh well, you, you have to read it out. Um, if you while, checked, while Matt's finding, while man, Matt's finding that, yes, please help us out, producers and eavesdroppers. It only takes a minute. Come on, <laughs> leave us a review on iTunes for goodness' sake. What's say. that, Rick? <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what's going on, Morty. <laughs> oh, hang on, hang on. I've got the thing. Oh. 
Little thing. Hang on, Morty. I've <laughs> got yeah, a portal gun. Got... Go on, have you got the review? Yeah. Have you found it? Yes, yeah, so it's obviously another five-star review. Um, surprisingly, very funny. Great job. Great job. Ooh. Great job. Five stars. That sounds yeah. like a bit of an American, isn't that? Surprisingly funny. Can we have that on T-shirts? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, iTunes are important. Donations. <laughs> we we accept monetary hey, recompense first first. <laughs> for doing this. You know, yeah. go to com. look at the page that says how to become a producer, and then, mm. you know, for goodness sake, toss us a coin. Toss a coin to your witcher, <laughs> Old Valley of Plenty, Old Valley of Plenty. We need to do with the dessert spoons, put it in a bowl of warm water as well before we should You know, not much to ask, is it? That is and fast becoming one of my favourite songs of all has- time. <laughs> Has the merch gone live? Could you not just buy a praise Jabalon pair of leggings? We don't oh. get make more money out of that. It's not live yet, no. Oh, I should have Carthage sweatpants. We would have sold out by now. No, we started Surely. a lot down and I was dead keen and I had loads of time and then uh, it just it, it didn't happen. So we start with something smaller than, you know, sweatpants. <laughs> like a badge or something. <laughs> I think it's all the same, sticker. isn't it? Economy is of scale. Just- it's just made to order, isn't it? Anyway, yeah. Yeah, license so. plate holders are big in the states. Get some of them made up. Mm. Oh, I've got it. Tax disc holders. Oh yes. <laughs> order order a thousand. Uh, birthday shout out. Oh, producer Rob Rob Golfmate is was forty two years old yesterday on uh, right. Saturday. So shout out Happy to producer day. Rob. Rob. Many happy Hi, returns. Rob. He's the guy. Do you remember a story of someone saving someone's life on a golf course? Lightning was involved, was it? A heart attack. <laughs> the oh, light- it was a heart attack. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Ben. Lightning in a box. Be- <laughs> boxed, embellished. boxed lightning. It's called a. It's called a defibrillator. But yes. Defibrillator. Lightning in a box, you're correct. Yes. So he was 42 yesterday. Um, We had a communique via Insta from Joe, who now becomes a producer because we're reading this out. Yeah, he's an executive producer. Thanks for the follow. Hadn't heard of you till this morning. Now I'm two podcasts deep and want more. Highlight of my day was hearing that broken woman from New Zealand's laugh. Keep up the good work. Um, Go on. Keep up Play the good quick. work. <laughs> Play what quick? <laughs> this one's for you, uh, Joe. <laughs> oh, come on. I can't it's find it. <laughs> this is cool. Go for it. I don't mind. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> If you want to make a phone call, go for it. I don't mind. Bring it on. <laughs> uh, if there's anyone out there that can do the real Chewbacca sound, I might marry you. <laughs> I got Ben's laugh there as well. God. <laughs> That's maniacal. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, oh, i tell you what, you know, in his note, Joe, mm-hmm. he says, um, 
The highlight of my day was hearing that broken woman from New Zealand's laugh. Right. From New Zealand? Is she from Australia? Yeah, Cairns. Jessica from Cairns. Oh, right, okay. Uh, I've taken out... I don't even have my... uh, Or do I have it? (laughs) Oh, come on. No, I don't have it. I've don't, I don't have the corrections jingle on anymore. It's that long since the producer sent in a correction. I've taken the jingle off the board. I know, because he's not driving to Liverpool anymore, is he? Is he not listening? No, I don't think so. Ah, uh, what? Do we have a man I mean, over? Do we have a man overboard? What's he yeah. doing when he's uh, when he's redecorating his house, which is what everyone's doing now? I don't know. Probably, you know, has a, a new child to look after, doesn't he? So, of course, yeah. Oh, I've got it. Hey, that's a live. We've never. I don't think we've had a live correction before. Jessica was no. from Kearns, not New Zealand, Joe. So, mm. hey, thanks for listening. Anyway, thanks for the hey, message. Yeah. yeah. Hey, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, you have a good and. do we want to move on to covid news covid news covid i think i got a jingle for covid no well what have you been doing for six months not that obviously (laughs) exactly you know Uh, you you brought a story to attention this week matt what's that the germans the germans the protests in berlin yeah, the Germans are protesting the draconian PPE laws and uh, marching without PPE. I got a clip from Deutsche Welle with a weird anchor. So prepare, yeah. prepare yourself for this. Can you uh, portmanteau those two words, please? Weird and anchor. Weird anchor. Mm. Weird anchor. Weird anchor. Is that better? <laughs> Here in Germany, the number of coronavirus infections has soared in recent days. The country's leading public health institute is warning that people are letting down their guard and not observing social distancing measures. Ironic, then, that Berlin is set to see its biggest demonstration against coronavirus restrictions. Thousands of people are gathered in the German's capital, Central Tiergarten Park, for a mass rally demanding an end to all virus-related restrictions. Conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers, and right-wing extremists from across the country are among those attending. It comes as Germany braces for a potential second wave of the coronavirus. Sounds like our podcast guests, doesn't it? Which one? He said... uh... Anti-vaxxers, right-wing protesters, and uh, I don't think we've had any of them. Conspiracy theorists? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I thought, yeah, should be the presenters, I should say. Guilty. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Uh, I've got another report, actually, with a, a normal sounding anchor that gives us a bit more detail about, you know, if you wanted to hear what the actual protesters were saying... We are free people, chants this crowd. During the coronavirus pandemic, they say wearing a mask and adhering to restrictions is violating that freedom. 
And it seems thousands agree. A mixture of conspiracy theorists, far-right figures and citizens concerned by the economic effects of the lockdown took to the streets of Berlin to say the coronavirus has been a false alarm. That's just plain scare tactics. I don't see any danger. I don't know any sick people. I knew many sick people in March, skiers, vacationers. There was really something going on in February, but now there's no sick people anymore. I've got a friend who is 93. She's in a care home, in her room, totally isolated. There's no corona in her home, and yet she wasn't allowed to leave her room. Now she's allowed to go out for a walk again. But if she meets someone, she has to give their address. I think that's extreme. Our demand is back to democracy. Get rid of the laws that restrict us. Get rid of the masks that turn us into slaves. <laughs> Shut up, slave! <laughs> Hardly any of the demonstrators were wearing face masks or adhering to social distancing protocols. Berlin police attempted to enforce distancing measures over megaphones, eventually dissolving the protests and telling people to go home. German politicians mostly... There we are, that's what's happening in Berlin yesterday. Yeah, 17,000, they said. I believe they estimate. I think they were expecting half a million. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they probably were, they're just socially distanced. Well, there was counter-protests, you know. What, with people with PPE? And People, distanced. Yeah, wearing masks and socially distanced. And both pro groups of protesters were calling each other Nazis. <laughs> oh. The people with PPE were calling the protesters Nazis because uh, some of them are far right. Yeah. And the protesters were calling the counter-protest Nazis because they think, well, you know, this is what happens if you just be a sheep and listen to what the government tell you to do. We'll end up back in 1939 again. <sighs> so, oh, strange times mm. is that is that the first mass protest about having to wear masks then well i think this one i've heard of you said in the report that it's been sort of bubbling over for a bit mm. but i've not heard of one in another country i mean mm. as well, yet well you, th you see you know what's coming is it's the second wave they're talking about the second wave so what's that gonna mean lockdown again Yes. Yeah. And, uh, well, this is the interesting thing is that, uh, like, some science guy I was listening to was saying that the first Bill wave. Nye. Of, I Bill, don't know. Bill Nye, the science guy. Maybe, yeah. Bill Nye. Science um, guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the first wave's not even finished yet. So, you know, it's a bit early for the second. No waves on the ocean. Yeah. Just a choppy sea. I don't know. There was. I, a, think, it's, hmm? I think it's obviously going to happen again. Have you not? Had, have you not had a text from your GP? No, because I don't give him my details, my my web, my email, right? All right. Oh, yeah, my GP. I've signed up for that my GP thing. Yeah. And he texts me saying, um, "Preston's had a spike, mm. ah. and um, don't don't leave your house." Yeah, you can write me a fucking letter if you want to get hold of me. No, you know, saying sort of stuff, you know, have you heard on the news about East Lanks? Yeah. Sort of Rossendale, Blackburn, you know, you're not supposed to mix, meet up from people from different households and... Do you know, I, th I think there's a conspiracy angle to this. What's that? In that it's Eid. 
Oh yeah, that's been mentioned. Yeah. Well, I yeah, I mean, I was reading this kind of subtext in that. Um, oh yeah, it's Eid, and people are going to go around to different people's houses, and I was wondering if they were. But I saw an interview. A preemptive I, lockdown. Yeah, there's a, an interview with a, some kind of public health advisor for Trafford, and they were in Altrincham, which is a primarily white and affluent area and there'd been a bit of a spike there or something you've got to balance it out you can't just can't just lock down the primarily southeast south asian populations can you no one's suggesting that all right i thought that's what you're suggesting (laughs) no all right i'll dial back sorry (laughs) (laughs) abort Did you hear about America's frontline doctors this week? Uh, no. On Capitol Hill, Dr. Stella Emanuel. Dr. Fauci? Dr. Stella Emanuel. Only, Have you not heard this story? No, I've only heard of Dr. Fauci, whatever his name is. Anthony Fauci. No, this is Dr. Yeah. Stella Emanuel speaking at a in front of a group of doctors on Capitol Hill this week. Hello, um, I'm Dr. Stella Emanuel. I'm a primary care physician in Houston, Texas. You know, um... I actually uh, went to medical school in West Africa, Nigeria, where I took care of malaria patients, treated them with hydroxychloroquine and stuff like that. So I'm actually used to these medications. I'm here because I have personally treated over 350 patients with COVID. Patients that have diabetes, patients that have high blood pressure, patients that have um, asthma, old people. I think my oldest patient is 92, 87 year olds. And the result has been the same. I put them on hydroxychloroquine, I put them on zinc, I put them on Zitromax, and they are all well. For the past few months, I've taken care of over 350 patients who've not lost one. Not a diabetic, not a somebody with high blood pressure, not somebody with asthma, not an old person. We've not lost one patient. And on top of that, I've put myself, my staff, and many doctors that I know on hydroxychloroquine for prevention, because by the very mechanism of action, it works early and as a prophylaxis. We see patients, 10 to 15 COVID patients every day. We give them breathing treatments. We only wear surgical masks. None of us has gotten sick. It works. So right now, I, I came here to Washington, D.C. to say, America, nobody needs to die. Well, mm. do you know why? Someone gets a study going. Mm. Do you know why you haven't heard of that story? Did you make it up? Because she doesn't, she doesn't, she's not that bothered about wearing masks. Twitter banned it. Facebook no. banned it. Squarespace took down the website. Her website? Um, Americans Frontline Doctors website. It wasn't just her. There was a big group of them, about 20 of them, and they all came up and said the piece in the microphone. It's quite interesting that uh, if she's... Sorry, how does malaria affect you? Is it it's a bloodborne disease? That isn't it? Yeah, hydrochloric is uh, used as a treatment for malaria as well. That's been for yeah. 60, 60 years. Yeah. It's safe. But what, but what does uh, how does malaria affect you? Does it affect your lungs or something? Red blood cells. All oh, right. Okay. These studies that have dismissed hydroxychloroquine, um, as far as I know have only used hydroxychloroquine, whereas as her her approach is the zinc and the Z, mm. Z-Max, is it? Something? 
I don't know what she said, yeah. There's a guy in France, a French guy, who came out with a, a paper months ago. He's been treating people with this, this regime and apparently been successful, but it's just yeah. an interesting story. It's more interesting to me in, in how it got shut down rather than, uh, yeah. you know, because it's anecdotal, you know, you know, 350 mm. patients she's treated. Okay, so what? Yeah, it's not a lot, is it, still, unfortunately? Well, it's it's a zero mortality rate. If she's been telling the truth, mm. then I have no mm. reason to think she's lying. But they've, they've come after her now. The, the media's come after her and they're uh, trying to destroy her reputation because she's <laughs> a pastor as well. Backed, the event was backed by Tea Party Patriots, a conservative organisation seeking to re-elect President Trump. So that's what I'm talking May about. not be relevant. No, but do, do, do you see the undercurrent? Who who supports hydroxychloroquine? Trump. Yeah, Trump. He, he cannot be proved to be right. Yes. Uh, and they will hell or high water. He must be wrong. Orange man, bad. <laughs> Doesn't matter how many people we have to put in the ground. He can't be right. The election's fucking three months away. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the savior, the big orange savior. <laughs> well. I just thought it was interesting. It brings us to the, uh, uh, you must have heard of the mass debate. <laughs> I've heard of it. <laughs> this morning, as COVID cases mount across the country, the mass debate is intensifying. People are very passionate on both sides of the great mass debate. The partisan mass debate is heating up. Mass debate's growing. The president is trying to have us cover the mass debate. CBS, Target, and Walgreens are getting in on the mass debate. The mass debate now taking center stage at local restaurants. It's nine minutes after six now, and there's new video of a raging mass debate. The mass debate in Georgia. Is getting ugly. The great mass debate in West Virginia might soon be coming to an end. This mass debate is far from over. How many mass debates have you gotten into? Love to hear it. The mass debate was taken to a whole nother level. Bishop David Zubik tells Pittsburgh's Action News 4 he found himself in the middle of a mass debate. We'll dive deeper into this pet store mass debate. So we're going to begin with this thing we're calling the great mass debate. It's wow. here. The great mm. mass debate is here. I just like to masturbate on a rock by myself. <laughs> <laughs> They're great, those supercuts. It's crazy, you see, the, the news media in the States is crazy. Once they get older, something like this, mm. you know, you get these. And, and they don't even see the humour. I think they do. I think some of them are, uh, you oh, know, right, okay. what, the, the guy who says raging masturbate, yeah. I think he's uh, yeah, some kind of freak. Yeah. <laughs> We've got some uh, got some vaccine news this week. Ooh, vaccine! Yeah, the Mo- the Moderna vaccine that's been under trials. Um, there's some, the virus one, the COVID Oof, vaccine. I mean, Oof. there's there's over a hundred, isn't there? Yeah, there's loads. Yeah, but I think I, I read that we've bought like six, seventy, or ninety million of one of them already up front. Right. Well, um, Dr. Bill, Dr. Bill Gates was on uh, <laughs> CBS this week um, with Nora O'Donnell. And I have a feeling they were talking about the Moderna vaccine, the results. And I think she's sort of gone off script here. Mm-hmm. Moderna vaccines sound concerning. We looked. After the second dose, at least 80% of participants experienced a systemic side effect, ranging from severe chills to fevers. So... Are these vaccines safe? Well, the uh, 
the FDA not being pressured will look hard at that. The FDA is the gold standard of regulators uh, and their current guidance on this, if they stick with that, is is very, very appropriate. Uh, and, you know, the, it, the, 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 the side effects were not super severe. That is, it didn't cause permanent health problems for uh, the things there. They, you know, Moderna did have to go with a fairly high dose. And so, uh, you know, to get the antibodies, some of the other vaccines uh, are going able to go with lower doses to get uh, responses that are, are pretty high, including the, the J&J and the Pfizer. And so there's a lot of characteristics of these vaccines. Um, it's great that we have multiple of them. Uh, that are bill, going out there and, and yes i you, think you know the data the better than i do but the bill bill the, the data showed that everybody with a high dose had a, a side effect yeah but some of that is is not dramatic where you know it's just you know super painful but yes <laughs> it's just super painful <laughs> yeah that's fine uh for, it's just super painful for a few weeks <laughs> These are... Um, and then you die. Category three side effects, these are, that the Moderna Ooh. vaccine. So category five is death. <laughs> and uh, category four is either, I think it's either life-threatening or permanent damage. Permanent damage, yeah. yeah so like these Gillian-Barr syndrome. I think it's were, category four. Uh, these were category, uh, category three side. Yeah, just super pain. Just super painful. Mm. Just like, you know, you want to claw your own eyes out because it's so painful. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, if you just have to have it once and it saves your life, that, I guess that's a trade-off. I mean, if you can stick to one dose, um, one dose of super pain. <laughs> every like that, every uh, co- yeah, one dose of super pain every COVID season. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to work like that. How many doses of the vaccine will we need? <laughs> Well, none of the vaccines at this point appear like they'll work with a single dose. That was the the hope at the very beginning. Uh, maybe one of them, particularly in the second generation, won't surprise us. We hope just two, although in the elderly, sometimes uh, it it takes more. And, and so making sure we have lots of elderly people in the trial will give us that data. So you get your, uh, your, your elderly, your weak, your vulnerable people. And, you know, just three or four doses of, of super pain. Super pain. <laughs> he doesn't even oh, say wow. three. He says more. It might be ten. <laughs> you just have your injection your injection of super pain once a day. <laughs> and you get to live your your life in pain. Something you like your revenue with two doses over one. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, there may not be any other driver behind that. I mean, who is... Who is going to be looking for a vaccine that only requires one dose when you're kind of already starting to condition the populace into mm-hmm. accepting multiple doses? Everyone's going to go for, oh, well, ours is the best, but you're going to have to have four. Um, <laughs> it's going to cost you four, you know, four times what this other one costs, but it's only mega pain. It's not super pain. <laughs> so, you know, credit card, please. Oh, my God. I've... Um... I've got an Inception moment. You Don't fa- fall asleep. Are you familiar with the film Inception? Yes, yeah. I'm familiar with the film. <laughs> right, well, I've got a clip here from um, Friday's Mal and Baker show. 
and um, it's about a COVID death perception survey that was carried out internationally, which I found <laughs> rather interesting. <laughs> Sorry, Morty. Check this out. Take it away, Malin. A new poll was released this week, which surveys citizens from the UK, the US, Sweden, Germany and Japan to find out what percentage of a population they believed had died as a result of COVID-19. And the results are pretty breathtaking. US citizens believe that around 9% of people had died due to COVID-19. 9%! So for every 10 people you know, you'd be thinking that nearly one should have died. Had that been the case, the death rate in the US would have been approaching nearly 30 million. (laughs) The total number of deaths in the world is currently listed at only 670,000. I mean, we all know the data's junk with different countries measuring different things. I'm pretty sure we'd have noticed if it was that far out. Germany, which has so far done the best in keeping the numbers of fatalities down, actually did the worst in the mismatch between reality and perception. Its citizens thought that 3% of people had died, which was 300 times higher than the reality of what happened in Germany. Woohoo for the UK, along with Japan and Sweden, we only came up with a figure that was 100 times too high. (laughs) Oh, except for Scotland. If you split Scotland out, they apparently believe that over 10% of people have died, which is even higher. (laughs) Obviously, those perceptions matter. If you're trying to open up your country again, how people perceive the degree of risk that's involved can make a huge difference in what they do and how they behave. Excellently Mm. insightful video, as usual, from Mallon on a Friday. Yeah. Mm. But I, I thought that was shocking. Yeah, but I mean, the other side of it is is people's poor, poor knowledge of statistics as well. It might not be that they necessarily think that, well, necessarily think that um, one in 10 people died, if you put it like that. They might just say, well, 10%, you know, that sounds like a small number. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They're not asking, asking experts, are they? Do you know what I mean? Well, the thing is, the government, looking at it, mean. the government doesn't have to govern experts, does it? It has to govern the populace, mind control, governments, <laughs> right? So the point is, is that the media response and the government messaging has led the population to believe that 10% of the population has died. Yeah. Regardless, it doesn't you're... matter whether they're experts or not or how good the statistics are. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, that's one way of looking at it, isn't it? But it's the only way of looking at it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We've accepted the decimation of the population. Then we have the the majority of us are are accepting that ten percent of us are are dead, but they're just still going to beaches and whatnot and just getting on with it. Ben, Ben, (laughs) did you you intentionally use the word decimation? I did. Yes. (laughs) Did you know what the roots of that word are? I do know the roots of the word. It goes back to ancient Rome. Yeah. And killing one one in ten of your your uh, cohort your cohort, <laughs> yeah, beaten to death by his mates, yeah, yeah. to teach him a lesson. Yeah, I, I think it's mind blowing that how way off they were. Three hundred German, three hundred times overestimating COVID deaths. The other thing as well is if you link it to, um, if you say between Scotland and England. Sturgeon has been more um, reluctant. I think she seems more on a message is clearer, but she's more reluctant to relax the social distancing and the PPE than what Boris has been. Whoever's running the country 
Dominic Cummins has been, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I think that's reflected in what the kind of figures because mm-hmm. I think you're probably right. It's going to have an impact, isn't it, on um, how you feel by what you've been told to do. Yeah, you say? and the economy is driven by perceptions and you know mm. by it, com- the confidence of the market and individuals yeah. confidence in you know am i going to have that new kitchen am i going to spend yes. five grand on a new kitchen well i yes. don't know maybe not yes. i don't know if i'm going to be in a job in in three months you know and if i'm going to be alive what did 10 of us is dying exactly yeah, so you better get it we're being decimated <laughs> decimated 10 <laughs> percent um do you want to move on from covid Anything more yeah. to add? Well, I've just got one thing to add. Do we have add. that power? <laughs> yes. The, 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 the pandemic will be over when we decide it's over. Okay, cool. Just give me another few months. Yeah. <laughs> Go on, what were you going to say? What's your final thing? I think COVID has um, caused us to change our shopping habits because my wife bought a kilogram of peanut chocolate and M and M's this weekend. Wow. Where from? And it, and it came in a kilo <laughs> bag. <laughs> Where's everything come from these days? Aldi, China, <laughs> <laughs> Amazon. A kilo oh, from okay. Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Everything comes from Amazon in our house at the moment. Well, they're the big winners, you know, of this. Mm. I've got a friend from back in the day. And he works as some kind of manager for Amazon. And uh, he said he's like, he said he's been, since it all started, it's been like Christmas, figuratively. Yeah. But in terms of um, his workload, it's been that busy since March. And he said he's been told to expect it until next year. Yeah. For a year of Christmas for him. Christmas intensity. Of work. Sounds amazing. A bonus. Yeah. He's getting a bonus, I think. Oh, right. Okay. All right. So that part. It's just the scrotes who don't get a bonus. <coughs> yeah. Um, okay. We'll move on. Don't worry about them. We'll move on from COVID. Um, I was looking into uh, Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And it seems apparent that a lot of the big corporations are starting to distance themselves now from Black Lives from- Matter. Is it because they've actually started reading their manifestos, like tearing down the government and the police and stuff? Well, when did we talk about this? Fucking like five, six weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah. Now defund the police and all that. Anyway, um, there was a Black Lives Matter, 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 <laughs> Black Lives Matter uh, rally or whatever in London. I think it was last weekend. And um, I clipped one of the speakers um, who was talking there. And I thought you might like to hear it. Can't talk about black issues and LGBT issues and exclude them as if they're some individual issue. You need to be looking at this using intersectionality, which is a, a word that you know is, is thrown around, but what does it really mean? It means recognizing that there is one common enemy, the white man. And, uh, and the systems that they use are capitalism, patriarchy, and fascism. They were created and perpetuated by white men for white men in the interests of white men. Was she just one mansplaining to, mm. uh, to us? 
Yeah, this is pretty dangerous. Uh, luckily, she has the solution to the world's problems. Uh, we need to address the fact that, you know, all of these groups of people, the issues they face, it all comes from the same people, white men. So we need to get rid of them. <laughs> um, I mean, how we do that? Eat them. Kill the rich. Kill the rich. Kill the rich. Burn them. This is yeah. why they shouldn't let students on television. <laughs> pretty dark that yeah it is of course it is pretty pretty dark i've been talking about this shit since we started the podcast Mm. this is where it leads Mm. you look through the fucking you look at the world through the prism of fucking race your entire working living day this is what you turn into one of these fucking vicious ideologues (laughs) treat people like a fucking individual don't blame the world for your problems Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> Clean your fucking room and get on with it. <laughs> oh, my it's God. Mm, yes, it's quite, it's quite troubling, isn't it? And I think that's what Malin was saying, wasn't it? It's like this kind of notion of Black Lives Matter, which is, I suppose, what most people are aware of, you know, is, the, is George Floyd and sort of like the issues that obviously there between sort of the police and all the rest of it and, what happens with violent arrests and things, but then the actual organisation Black Lives Matter seems a little bit extreme, really. They always talk about the same things: Marxism, mm. Palestine, as in them being overtaken by Israel, Israel, yeah, yep. uh, and you know, white men being the fucking bane, you know. I don't know. It's it's dark. I just thought it was really fucking dark, and there's people laughing at it. And you think, oh god, it's like get get it's a clue, man. Nervous laughter. <laughs> yeah, it's it? a I hope. Bit I would like hope. Nervous laughter, didn't it? I'd hope so. I'd hope so. But, like, That's, that... it sounds like something you'd say in the SU after eight pints of piss, <laughs> stood on the table. Ah, oh, eat the rich, kill the white man. <laughs> I don't think it's any any coincidence that um, the majority of the BLM protesters are youngsters. No, it's just mm. youthful exuberance gone looking mental. Yeah. Shall we shall we lighten the mood before we go? Yeah. Okay. We can't finish on <laughs> eat white men <laughs> and kill the rich. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a new smartphone out taking the world by storm. Um. Taking bedrooms by storm, actually. Have you heard of it? Is it the Almost Inquisition podcast app? No, it's Is it be- a tease made up. <laughs> no, it's Lickster. A perfect night deserves a perfect finish. The energy is electric. You made it back to her bedroom, and it's now the moment of truth. But are you ready? With Lickster, you will be. Lickster is a revolutionary new training game that will make you a cunnilingus pro lickety split. Because the fact is, only 25% of women orgasm from intercourse, and like it or not, your dick will never compare to a good lick. Simply glide your tongue along Lickster's dynamic interface to advance through levels. It's just like Candy Crush, except instead of crushing candy, you're licking a digital vulva. Oh. <laughs> Fuck. It's just... Uh, nonsense. It's proper high tech, actually. There's algos and all sorts. Check this out. 
Our sensitive algorithm technology detects cadence, pressure, and whether you're using the tip, blade, or flat of your tongue. Advanced players will learn to incorporate the three fundamentals of pleasure. The rhythm of your tongue against your clitoral head, the position of your fingers against your clitoral cluster, and the support of your hands under her buttocks. Oh, right, okay. I thought I was going to show my mum this podcast, because I thought <laughs> this would be a good one. There's no swearing. We're talking about archaeology. <laughs> Now that's out of the window. <laughs> well, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what you know, what sort of new techniques am I going to learn from this app? Don't worry, Lick's just got you covered. You'll learn moves and combos like paint the canoe, crisscross applesauce, nose bone, slip inside, bottom of the yogurt cup, aka cervix explorer, and up, down, left, right. Enable oral feedback to keep you motivated wherever you're playing. Oh, Nick, keep going, Nick. I'm about to come in a while. <laughs> Come in a while. <laughs> I'm waiting for a bus. <laughs> Can you tell me why Mark Zuckerberg's doing the voiceover? <laughs> Could he not get someone sexier like the um, old Spice guy? Yeah, he should do something. Mm. Want to change our band name to Nosebone? <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, though, a free app, how do free apps make money? Ads. Buying stuff. In-app person purchases. Let's find out. In-app purchases include access to additional erogenous zones like the fourchette, perineum, and anus. But Lickster isn't just for you and your lover. Fully engorged. Its simul-post feature auto-connects with Facebook, Snapchat, and LinkedIn, so your friends, family, and coworkers will always know who's on top of going down. Sometimes you gotta put your money where your mouth is, and sometimes you gotta put your mouth where her vagina is. Lickster, stop fingering your phone and start licking it. Tell your family, so you can oh, tell I, your family how good you are at eating pussy. This, uh, this series of dragons, Dan. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> uh, th- thanks to uh, Gav from the Langshire Hot Pod for that one. Mm. That's, uh, that was disgusting. Terrible. I've uh, yeah. I've one more story. I know time's oh. marching on. Okay, is it, you've got a serious face again now. Well, I'm trying to... I'm I'm also de- developing another theme where we end on um, <laughs> something that makes you feel like things could be worse. <laughs> All right, okay. Uh, okay. So let's hear this one. The British man whose penis fell off due to a severe blood infection had a new one built on his arm, where he even got an extra two inches, according to a report. Malcolm MacDonald of Thetford, Norfolk, received a £50,000 NHS-funded surgery to have the appendage attached to his arm through an arm graft procedure. At the time, the man was suffering through a long-term perineum infection that caused his penis to turn black from sepsis and eventually made it fall off. The 45-year-old mechanic turned to alcohol after his distressing medical ordeal and said his life fell apart and he became a recluse. In an article from the Evening Standard, he recalls how he picked up his penis after it fell off and threw it in the bin. He had been warned by his doctors of this and that there was nothing they could do to save it. He said, it really feels like it is time to get it off. I can't run because it waggles about. I can't go swimming or wear a short sleeve shirt. I can't lie, having a penis on your arm for four years is a really strange thing to live with. But I am determined this penis will be ultimately used for what it was built for. Wow. Four years. Well, it got cancelled. They were meant to do it, the graft, and then he was ill. 
and then he got better and they were meant to do it again and COVID happened. So he's had this dick on his own for four years. For four years. And what about like the urethra? Are they going to use like a, are they going to use a, an artery or something like a vein instead? McDonald's milkshake straw. Yeah. I'd really be able to like, you know, function, get an erection. I think we pump it up or something. I think we need just going to be like a flap, a flap of skin. I think you'll have to choose either on all the time or off all the time. Yeah. How does it, how does it work? (laughs) (laughs) Let's hear from the man himself. It's an option to leave it on the arm. (laughs) Oh yeah. That could be easier. So black, no blood supply, no nothing. Chosen black is like I had socks on for my toes were like basically the, the, just the toes were black and then my fingers were going black as well. I don't know why, I don't know if it's because the end of your limbs or... But yeah, and then this one just... How, how did you feel when your pe- penis fell off? I'm not having sex no more. What? <laughs> you know? I had to, I got two, two children anyway, so... Did his tongue fall off? Yeah, <laughs> I can't hear a word. You can't tell a word he was saying. Then something it just fell off. Yeah, it was some sort of blood uh, disorder, and his extremities started going black, and uh, mm, his penis went black, and, and and it fell off. Right, that's just crazy. Yeah. So I mean, what do you do when your uh, when your penis falls off? Turn to alcohol. Throw it in the bin. Well, he sought medical advice, and here we go. So black, no blood supply, no nothing. Chosen black is like I had socks on. Wrong one. I actually asked the doc- my doctor if they could do anything, and they said, yeah, they could. They referred me to the local hospital, which is Paris and Evans, and all they was going to do is basically uh, what was left, just wrap it up like a sausage roll, put a bit of skin on the outside of it, and leave it as like that. So they're still not gonna, I'm still not going to be able to stand up on me or anything. So I said, well, forget about that procedure. Then I got another uh, letter through saying about another procedure, which was this one here. The doctor said, "Best we could get a bit of skin and wrap it up like a sausage roll." <laughs> oh, would you? Oh, like the the piece of skin, or like what was left? What was down left? There? Yeah, we'll wrap it up like a sausage roll. <laughs> mm. And he said, "No thanks." <laughs> oh my god! Oh dear! What a shame, Malcolm. So, yeah. yeah, if you've ever wondered what it'd be like to have a, a penis on your arm. What's it like having a penis on your arm? I can't do nothing. I can't go down the shops with a T-shirt on. I can't go swimming with the kids. I can't, you know. <laughs> can't go swimming with the kids. <laughs> that man's got a dick on his arm. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you Instead of taking the piss, we should get him on the podcast. <laughs> yes. Although we won't be able to tell what he was saying. Oh, man. Yeah, he's had it oh, on his arm for four years. I That's just fair. can't get oh. my head around. To, and, you could you, get your head around to it if you, you tried. Think, <laughs> do you think it's just like a flap of skin or is it like... It's a penis. It? He has a penis <laughs> on his arm. Is it the penis out the out of the bin? <laughs> no, a new, they made him a new one. Yeah, but how? How can you make a penis? Skin graft. <laughs> and then they had to let it go. I don't know, maybe it was... Like a judgment day and terminating. <laughs> no, because, like, I've seen, you know, if you lose an ear, they can take a piece of cartilage mm. out of your, out your chest mm. 
and then they the carve shape. it. Yeah, they carve it, don't they, into the shape of an ear, mm. and then they put it under your skin, and then you you graph, you take that skin off, and then you put that on as your ear. Um, but how do you grow sausage meat? Here's more from Dick Pound. <laughs> how do you do that? How do you do that? I don't know. Uh, they're just also amazing in their love, aren't they? They are, yeah. So amazing in their love. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bro, Ben, I've broke him. <laughs> <laughs> so Oh, well, at least he's not a hairy leg communist. I got hairy legs. Because I'm literally a communist. Oh. That's a good way to end, then. Is that the last yeah. one? I'm, I'm... No, we'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely spent. All oh, right, okay. Totally spent. I've nothing more. I enjoyed all of those. Thank you. Cut out. Great. <laughs> no. Can't have children with a whore. Because I'm literally a communist. Right, next week. Ian rides far next week. Ian rides far. Ian rides far. Is he the stormtrooper? I mean, paratrooper. Eavesdroppers, if you've ever had the thought experiment, what would happen if I jumped out of a plane and maybe my parachute failed? I would tune in next week. Yes, boom. Gonna be a doozy. Gonna be a doozy. I got hairy legs. Alright, we'll go then. Mm. See you later. Alright. Sayonara. Here's more for Dick Pound. Mr. Peter Bone! The Dwarf, the Cripple, and the Mother of Madness. <laughs> <laughs>